Well, if you have your Bibles with you, open up to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to be continuing our verse-by-verse exposition of this incredible letter written from the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus. And out of your bulletin, then you see that today's message title is Replacing Evil Vices with Eternal Virtues. Replacing Evil Vices with Eternal Virtues. And this morning we're going to be wrapping up chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians. And we're going to be looking at verses 31 and 32. Actually, I've got to be honest with you. I didn't get through it in the first service. So I guess we're going to wrap up next time. I'm going to get halfway through this sermon, Lord willing, and we'll probably end up uh, finishing it in the future. But here we are, Ephesians chapter 4, the last two verses of the chapter, starting in verse 31, we read, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Father, we bow our heads, our hearts before you this morning, and we pray that you would allow us to understand what you meant when you wrote for us to put away all of these evil sins. We pray, God, that you would bring deep conviction within our hearts, and at the same time, God, that we would see the beauty of grace And the beauty of your kindness, which leads us to repentance, of the tender heart of God, that we might forgive one another, even as God has forgiven us in Christ. Bless the preaching of your word. Allow our hearts to be changed because of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I wanted to share with you this morning some excerpts out of a blog from Desiring God written by Marshall Siegel, who uh, wanted to write a piece about the recently released movie on Christmas Day, the movie Unbroken. Talking about the faithfulness of God, listen to what this blog records about the man named Louis Zamperini, who lived from 1917 to just last year, 2014. He writes, he was a miracle of a man. He truly lived, better survived, one of the greatest stories ever written. The film begins with the troublemaking son of Italian immigrants, chronicles his unlikely and meteoric rise to fame as an Olympian, displays some of the most unspeakable horrors of war, and highlights the resilience and strength even weak men can have in the face of agonizing pain and unrelenting terror. What the film does will be intense and emotional to sober and inspire most of us. After a plane crash into the ocean, Louis and two fellow soldiers were trapped in a raft for 47 days before they were finally rescued, only to be captured by the Japanese. The bird, as they called him, the military officer who held and mercilessly uh, tortured Louis, is rightly, if not inadequately, portrayed as an awful, sadistic villain and criminal. But there are worse horrors hidden in this edition of the story. The movie simply does not go low enough and therefore cannot end high enough. If the worst things in life were war, 
torture, and death, then the movie might have done Zemparini some justice. But Louis himself would testify that they are not. There are worse evils and worse fates facing all of us. The darkness within each of us and the darkness we therefore deserve. Those who don't read the story will miss the reality that Louis was actually a very broken man. Horribly broken by his own sin and sweetly broken by God. Shortly after his feet landed back on American soil, Louis went back with his family to his childhood home here in California. They enjoyed food and conversation and unwrapping several years of unwrapped Christmas presents. Everything seemed peaceful, almost normal. Then his sister Sylvia played a recording of Louis's voice that had been broadcasted over to the public radio during the war. Take it off! Take it off, Louis yelled, and then fell into a violent screaming convulsion, a scene that would sadly mark most of the next several years of his life. Like the immature, insecure boy before the Olympics, post-war Louis picked fights over nothing, then drowned his emotional scars and nightmares with endless alcohol, and he suffered the pervasiveness of the curse of many POWs, struggling with post-dramatic stress disorder. Laura Hildebrand, who wrote the story on which the film was based, writes this, quote, No one could reach Louis because he had never really come home. In prison camp, he had been beaten into a dehumanized obedience to a world order in which the bird was absolutely sovereign, and it was under this world order that he still lived. The bird had taken his dignity and left him feeling humiliated and ashamed and powerless, and Louis believed that only the bird could restore him by suffering and dying at the grip of his own hands. In other words, Louis wanted revenge of the bird. And a once singularly hopeful man now believed that his only hope lay in murder. In another crazed nightmare, this ugly insanity forced Louis on top of his poor wife in the middle of the night, beating and strangling her. Weeks later, Cynthia found him shaking their screaming baby girl. She finally filed for divorce. But everything changed in the fall of 1949. Billy Graham emerged in the nation's eye by holding a campaign in Los Angeles that drew tens of thousands of people, including one hurting and despairing wife and mother. Cynthia heard Graham's gospel, surrendered her heart to Jesus, and informed Louis that she no longer wanted a divorce. And while Louis was relieved that she had decided to stay, he remained skeptical and was even offended by her conversion. She pled and pled with him to attend one of the meetings, but over and over he angrily refused. Eventually, Louis gave in, and he heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He heard the message of forgiveness. He heard for the very first time the doctrine of the grace of God. In the end, Louis was broken after all. 
but not by the bird. God has done what the bird, weakened by the flesh, could never do. By sending his son, Jesus Christ, and then a tall, blonde-haired messenger named Billy Graham. God had painted yet another picture of his perfect patience, saving the foremost of sinners, the selfish, angry, violent, abusive, murderous, and unforgiving alcoholic. The true climax of Louis Zamperini's story happened years later on his second visit to that Japanese prison. Standing inside the walls that had watched him suffer so badly, he now looked into the eyes of many of the very men who had inflicted the blows. For the first time since the war, he was seeing the faces of his pain and humiliation. How did he respond? Did he devolve into a seizure of violent screaming? Did he silently burn with fear and with rage? No. Louis was seized by childlike, giddy exuberance. In bewilderment, the man who had abused him watched him come to them, his hands extended, a radiant smile on his face. He later wrote a letter to the bird, the man who had persecuted him and tortured him so, and he wrote this, quote, as a result of my prisoner of war experience under your unwarranted and unreasonable punishment, my post-war life became a nightmare. But thanks to a confrontation with God through the evangelist Billy Graham, I committed my life to Christ. Love replaced the hate I had for you. Forgiveness, not survival, was the victory laurel of Louis's life. The film misses that. Be sure that you don't. He was a man transformed by the gospel of grace. And the story of Louis Zemperini and the story of his life is really recorded in these two verses for us here in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, where we read about that we're to put away all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander away from, uh, along with all malice. I mean, if any man had a reason to be justified in the anger and unforgiveness that he felt, surely this man felt justified. And yet we're commanded here to put these evil vices off and they're to be replaced with these eternal virtues of kindness and tenderheartedness that we would learn like Louis did to forgive one another because God has forgiven us in Christ only God could do a work like this in Zamparini and only God can do a work like this in you well, as I've already said, we're finishing up chapter 4 of Ephesians. And if you're just joining us today or catching up with us, we're talking about putting off ungodly sinful behaviors and replacing them with something better. And we're on the fifth action that we're called to put off and to replace with something better. We first talked about lying in verse 25 or speaking words that are filled with falsehood. And we're going to replace that with speaking the truth in love. And then we looked at verses 26 and 27 about putting off sinful anger. And we are commanded in those two verses to replace that with righteous indignation. And then we're called to put off stealing and rather to work hard with our own hands, with honest labor, so that we might share with those who have need. 
And then the last couple of weeks, we spent some time talking about putting off unwholesome talk or corrupt words and to replace those with words of grace so that we might encourage one another. And today and next time we're together, we'll talk about putting off these evil vices and replacing them with eternal virtues. Now, each one of these five concepts, if you will, has a negative command And then it's followed with a positive command. And then there's a rationale of given why. And so we'll follow that same outline as we dive into our our text together this morning. If you've got your outline in front of you, you see the first heading is this. Number one, there's the negative command of putting off evil vices. And then he begins to list here in staccato fashion six sins that we're to remove out of our life. And the first one is this. And it's your first blank again if you're taking notes. Put off bitterness. Put off bitterness. Now, the root of the word bitterness is actually derived from an adjective that is used to describe a pointed or a sharp arrow. With reference to the senses, this word rendered as a sharp or bitter taste. It could be thought of as a pungent smell. It could even communicate sharp, penetrating pain or a piercing sound. The noun form of bitter, which is translated here as bitterness, can refer to a bitter taste of certain plants. With response to one's temper, it can also mean bitterness or resentment. In fact, the New Testament, this word occurs only four times. Once here in Ephesians, and then in three other places. So I want you to see those with me, if you will, this morning. Turn to Acts chapter 8, and we'll start reading in verse 17, and we'll see how that word bitterness is used on three other accounts in the New Testament. This is a narrative account in the book of Acts where the gospel has spread to Samaria. And there we read this, starting in Acts chapter 8, verse 17. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Here's our word. Next verse, 23. For for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And so what we learn here is that Simon the sorcerer was bitter at God. He wanted God's power without really wanting to have a relationship with the creator of the universe. And certainly over time, this had built into a deep bitterness inside of this man's heart. This shows a bitterness or an evil. In fact, the phrase here is a gall of bitterness. This refers to the worst part of bitterness. The ancients taught that just as affection came from the heart, that bitterness came from the gall, specifically the gallbladder. And to say, I love you with my heart of hearts means that I love you with the deepest part of my heart. And in the same way, to say the gall of bitterness means the very bitter center of bitterness. The bitterness of bitterness is what was in this man, Simon. It was in Simon because he was not a follower of God. 
The Old Testament mentions this same concept in Deuteronomy 29:18, beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve other gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. So in other words, the word bitter is used in context with the gall of bitterness, that deep bitterness way down deep within you. It's related here in the Old Testament to that bitter uh, bitter root which bears bitter fruit. Moses is saying here in the Deuteronomy passage, beware that you don't turn away from the Lord, thus letting your heart be given to a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit fruit. And so this gall of bitterness or this root of bitterness is used to show us that this has been going on for some time. That's the idea. It's been going on for a while. You don't just become bitter overnight. It's something that you don't deal with as we've been instructed earlier not to let the sun go down on your anger. And so bitterness begins to grow in you and it begins to fester to where it needs to be removed. It's what's being hinted at here in the Acts passage. There was a depth and a gall to this bitterness. The second place the word bitter is used in the New Testament is in the book of Romans. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. In this familiar passage, we read this, Romans 3.10, as Paul is quoting some various passages from the Old Testament. He says, now it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. This verse is about you. This verse is about you and me. This verse is about before we came to Christ, no matter how kind you tried to be, no matter how politically correct you thought you were, that before you came to Christ, you were filled with curses and with bitterness in your heart. For there's none righteous. No, not even one. And so we all have struggled with the sin of bitterness. We all have been guilty of committing this very sin. Here we're reminded that we were bitter against God, that every one of us, had an open, an open public expression of emotional hostility against God. The last place the word bitterness, other than here in our text in Ephesians, is used in the New Testament is in Hebrews chapter 12. Turn with me to Hebrews 12 and you'll see this last place that we see it used this morning where the author of Hebrews writes this, Hebrews 12, 14 and 15, strive for peace with everyone And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it may become defiled. Here's the idea again of the root of bitterness springing up again. I'll never forget my dad who loved to garden. Because he grew up on a tobacco farm in South Georgia and taught horticulture and biology at the local community college decided to plant a garden that consumed over half of our yard. And he wanted to get his two boys out there to weed the garden every Saturday morning, and I hated it. But he taught me how to work, and he taught me how to weed. And one of the things that he taught us is then, when you're in the garden, son, and you're getting rid of those weeds, you can't just nonchalantly rip off the top of those weeds. But you've got to grab that weed at the base 
You've got to turn it a little bit to the left and to the right, and you've got to pull, and you've got to turn and turn and pull and gently pull until you get that root out. And if you don't get that root out, you better dig, boy, and get down in that dirt till you get it out. don't want any weeds in my garden. Yes, sir. My dad's actually a very gentle man, but he did teach us about weeding correctly. You know what I'm talking about if you've got a yard, and a lot of you Californians don't. So you don't have to do this anymore. But you got to get in there and you got to get dirty. And you got to get to the bottom of it. It takes some effort to root out the bitter root of bitterness. Randy Patton, the former president of the ACBC Biblical Counseling Association, used to tell a story of how a couple scheduled a case to come in to counsel with him. And as they filled out their their, um, their form before they came in and he'd read over it. It seemed like the husband had a lot of sinful issues. And as he read a log of all the things the husband had done, he was amazed at the, the fact that this couple would even still be married. And so they come in for counseling and he's kind of planning to really get on this guy's case. But as they come and they sit down and they say a prayer and they start the counseling session, the woman takes out a notebook out of her purse and she kind of tosses it on the desk. And, he, and, and she said, there it is. And he says, there's what? And she said, well, there's a record of everything that man has ever done to me. So Randy said, he just paused and said, ma'am, I think we're going to start with you. (laughs) Because obviously there had been a root of bitterness building in her heart. And we're commanded in this passage today that we got to get rid of it. And so let me ask you this morning, Placerita, how are you doing in this area of your life? Are you bitter? Do you struggle with bitterness? Do you struggle with things in the past that you thought you had forgiven that person and yet they spring up again? Do you feel justified in the fact that you've been abused or maybe you've been a prisoner of war and illegally abused like Zamparini and so therefore you have a right to let that bitterness grow in you? You better weed the garden of your heart this morning. If you allow those roots to continue to sink down deep in your heart, it may be revealing that you don't know Christ or the gospel of grace at all. Well, let's move on to our second vice this morning. We're commanded not only to put off bitterness, but number two, put off wrath. We're going to see that wrath and anger, which will be the third word, are discussed together because they are synonyms. But there is still an observable difference between these two words. This first word, the word wrath, is the word thumos. And in classical times, it had the idea of the spirit or passion of a person. And when applied to a human, this word has to do more with the wild rage or the passion of the moment. This word for wrath is found in the New Testament 18 times. It can refer to passion. It can also refer to the anger of the devil. It is obvious that Paul's primary use of the word is to refer to human anger or emotion. Let's look at a couple of places where it's used in the New Testament. Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 is the account of where Jesus goes to Nazareth, his hometown, and he reads the Isaiah scroll, and he wants to talk and share the gospel of the fact he's the Messiah and the forgiveness of God and the fact that they could have the oil of gladness because he's fulfilling this, this text in their own midst. He's proclaiming the favor of the Lord. And yet in verse 28, we read this of those Nazarites. When they heard these things in the synagogue, they were filled with rage. 
or excuse me, wrath could be translated as rage. That's the word we're talking about. They're filled with this wrath. And the context here is showing that they truly are fulfilling this prophecy listed in verse 23, that no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And so the Jews responded with such rage and such wrath that they actually drove Jesus out of town and they wanted to throw him off a cliff. This is wrath. It just pours out. It's a lot of emotion and it comes out in the moment. Or turn with me to Acts 19, if you will. We see another example of this word wrath being used in the riot of Ephesus. And Acts 19 is where Paul, after preaching the gospel, had an economic impact on that city of Ephesians. That while it was a free city, still dedicated much of its economy to the worship of Diana. And they would practice evil things there in the temple of Artemis. In Acts chapter 19, after Demetrius, the silversmith, was upset that Paul's religion started cutting into his business, uh, begins to call him out. And so in 1928, when they heard this, they were enraged. That's the word, wrath. They were enraged, and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and, and Aristarchus and uh, the Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Here's the word again, wrath or rage. The idea that they were about to have a mob that would have likely killed Paul if the disciples had not said, You can't go in there simply because of his preaching of Christ and the economic effect it had on this city. They did not want any part of the gospel. And they got angry about it. They were filled with wrath. Look at one more place in Galatians 5. Right before we read about the fruit of the Spirit, we're challenged here with things that we need to put off. Galatians chapter 5, 19 through 21 Now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy. Here's the word, fits of anger. That's our word, wrath. Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What's Paul saying? If you're filled with wrath, it could be that you don't know God. If wrath characterizes the way you respond on a regular basis, and if you're not constantly repenting of sometimes the wrath and enragement that you feel, it could be that you don't know God. You and I have to put off all forms of sinful wrath. God's wrath is fully justified. Yours and mine is not. God's wrath is justified because it's in accordance with his holy character. It may look like he's flying off the handle at sin at times from a human perspective, but he is not. His wrath is stored up, and it is purposely and precisely placed on the sons of disobedience. It's because of God's holiness that he also is a God of wrath to punish those both in this world and forever in the fires of hell who don't repent, come to him and approach him not through their own merit, not through their own behavior, but through the grace that's provided through Christ. You and I are told to put off this form of sinful wrath. Maybe you're sitting there and say, well, I don't don't really have that kind of wrath. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, in today's culture, it's called a temper. Okay, do you have a temper? Then you struggle with wrath. You have a bad temper? You ever made an excuse? Well, I just got a bad temper. My dad had a bad temper. And that's just how we, that's just how we are. How do you respond when somebody cuts you off on the freeway? How do you respond when that kid spills soda 
in the kitchen all over the table again. How do you respond, guys, when your wife turns the channel to the shopping network right before the buzzer-beater basketball game? She wouldn't dare. (laughs) In the state of young children, we call this a temper tantrum. Here's how the trusted website Wikipedia defines a tantrum, okay? A tantrum or a temper tantrum is an emotional outbreak usually associated with children or those in emotional distress typically characterized by stubbornness, crying, screaming, defiance, angry ranting, a resistance to attempts at pacification, and in some cases, hitting. You ever experienced that? I have. You've got kids, you've experienced some degree of a temper tantrum. Have you ever wanted to do that? But you're an adult, so you can't do that anymore. But in your heart and in my heart, we still struggle with this wrath of emotional overflow of a heart that's not set right on the grace of God. By the grace of God, though, we're called to something higher. You don't have to respond that way. You're not captive to your sin anymore. You've been renewed by the grace of God. You can change the way you think and the way you talk and the way you act and the way you respond because the grace of God is bigger in your life than any habit you've ever formed. We're called to put off that kind of behavior and to replace it with something better. Well, let's move on to our third evil vice. It's anger. We're to also not only put off bitterness and wrath, but to put off anger. I told you earlier that wrath and anger are synonyms. Remember that wrath is the idea of passion or rage, and it tends to pour out in the moment of emotion. Think of wrath as an emotion that boils up and then bursts forth whenever it's triggered. This word for anger, on the other hand, is the word orge, and it is more of a state of anger. It means settled and abiding anger. Anger. If wrath is a forest fire that consumes everything in its path in the moment, then anger is those smoldering embers of glowing coals that stay hot for a long time. The word anger occurs 36 times in the New Testament. Only five of those refer to human anger. We've already discussed one of those in Ephesians 4.26, that we're actually commanded to be angry, but there's the idea of righteous indignation but not to have sinful anger or let the sun go down on our anger if it's done out of a sinful motive. We covered that exhaustively a few weeks ago. But Paul exhorts Timothy to not be angry. In fact, in 1 Timothy 2, verse 8, he says, I desire that every place, in every place, men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. In other words, he's exhorting Timothy saying, hey, look, when you guys get together, you need to be in prayer. You need to be lifting holy hands. You need to be having that kind of spirit about you, not anger or quarreling. So those in the church are to be maintaining a lifestyle of prayer and worship, not anger or quarreling. That's true of this church. When we get together, whether it's a committee or a ministry or an elder meeting or whatever, we're to come together to pray and encourage one another not to fall into quarrels and fights. You know how James addresses this. James 1, 19 and 20. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to what? Anger. 
slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. When you get angry, when you get upset, when you're frustrated, you need to just realize it's just anger. I told you a few weeks ago, sometimes I used to tell my wife when we would have heated discussions, that uh, sometimes I would feel frustrated. And my wife kindly pointed out to me, that's not a biblical word, frustrated. That might be anger. And I found it to be extremely helpful in, my, in our own talks together when we have wonderful conversations and I might feel like I'm getting frustrated. I found it so helpful to say, you know what, honey? I'm angry right now. I'm angry at you. And I want to ask you to forgive me for getting angry because that's a sin. And it's my fault. And it's my own issue. And I want to pray that God would help me not to be angry in this moment. We've got to deal with this before the Lord and before each other. I've, I've found that when I confess it, if I try to not act like I'm getting angry, like I'm not getting angry, I'm just a little bit, then it just keeps festering and it keeps prolonging that emotion. But as soon as I say, you know what, I'm angry and I'm in sin, I want to confess that to the Lord and I want to confess that to you and I want to ask you to forgive me. Instantly, that anger just diffuses away. Instantly, by the grace of God, we're no longer arguing. Instantly, in that moment, my wife always forgives me. Thank God. Appreciate that, sweetie. Because the idea is that's what keeps it from becoming that root of bitterness. That's what keeps it from becoming that gall that if you allow the sun to go down on your anger, it will rip you apart and you will give the devil an opportunity. Well, let's move on to the fourth evil vice would be this, put off clamor. Clamor has the idea of crying, screaming, shouting. Clamor is that uh, shout or outcry of strife and reflects the public outburst that reveals a loss of control. It is only used six times in the New Testament. Let me just give two of them to you quickly if I can. One is in Acts 23 where Paul had been arrested and he was put on trial before the Jewish council in Jerusalem for something that he didn't even do. It was accused of him that he brought a Gentile into the temple of the Jews, into the past the, the court of uh, Gentiles, into the court of Jews, but he did not. Either way, there was this council formed of Pharisees and Sadducees who come together. And listen to what Paul does. Acts 23, 6. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, uh, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. So he kind of throws out this grenade, and the grenade was this. The Pharisees believed in some type of spiritual world and resurrection and angels. The Sadducees did not. And so instead of the focus being now on Paul, they started to have this bitter debate amongst one another. In verse 7, it says, And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and Sadducees. And the assembly was divided, for the Sadducees say, There is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Here's our word. Then a great clamor arose and some of the scribes of the Pharisees party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or angel has spoken to them, spoken to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away and from uh, and among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Here's proof right here that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were not godly men. 
They get in a fight. Not only do they have bad doctrine of legalism and works and adding to the Old Testament law, they couldn't contain themselves when they got into a theological dispute and they began to fight with such vigor that the tribune had to come in and separate these, quote, covenant people of God. This led to the great clamor and the great fight that followed. You know what? There was a fight like this just a few years ago. I don't know if you remember, but in December of 2011 on the news, there was a recording about a great fight in the church of the nativity in Bethlehem, where some of us will be, Lord willing, and next month we'll get to visit this very site. Here's what the article reads. Clergy from two Christian sects came to blows, meaning like fighting, in the church of the nativity on Wednesday morning, prompting police to storm the Bethlehem holy site. Several dozen Greek Orthodox and Armenian priests were cleaning the interior of the church Wednesday morning when, according to witnesses, two of them began fighting. The fight quickly escalated and soon 50 to 60 priests were exchanging blows with broomsticks. (laughs) Bethlehem police were sent in to quell the fighting. How ridiculous. God forbid that our elder board would ever have a fight like that. (laughs) God forbid that you would be in some type of church function where a literal fight broke out. This is what clamor is. It's that kind of shouting, heated discussion that breaks into a fight. I remember as a kid, we had some neighbors that lived right next to us that would shout and scream and holler at each other until late in the night. One day, my brother and I were playing a pickup football game in our front yard, and I heard this couple fighting. And their kid was playing football in our yard. And they started fighting. We just kind of paused for a minute, and before you know it, the wife ran into our yard trying to escape the husband who ran behind her, grabbed her by the back of the head of hair, and pulled her down into the grass. And I just thought, man, what a horrible thing for anybody to see, especially their own child. But this is what clamor leads to. It's fighting where you're trying to just speak over one another. It's the kind of fighting where you have two people that just keeps talking and out-talking each other with bombastic style, not wanting to hear the other person, but it's just, it just keeps building. This is the kind of clamor we're to put off. That we would not enter into this kind of speech or this kind of talk with one another well we got to move on to our fifth one put off slander this will be the last one we get to today but this word for slander refers to the profane or abusive speech the word is actually blasphema which is where we get the english word blaspheme from the king james translates this word here in this passage as evil speaking So the slander or blaspheme or evil speaking, this is the word that's used 18 times in the New Testament, and it's used in clear places of slander, defamation of character, or abusive speech. It it, it is used when described of evil speech that's used against God. In fact, in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, and the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous, that's our word there, the blasphemy, the slander, words, and was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. And it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name in his dwelling. That is, those who dwell in heaven. So in other words, it's used by 
the beast in Revelation who slandered or blasphemed God. But not only is this word used about blaspheming or slandering God the Father, it's also used against God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. In fact, turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 12, and you'll see this familiar passage of the unforgivable sin. Matthew chapter 12, 31 and 32, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. It's the word slander. You're blaspheming. You're speaking against God. You're speaking against Christ. You're speaking against the Holy Spirit. And a couple of chapters later, we see the same word used by Jesus in Matthew 15, verses 18 and 19. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness. And there's our word, slander. It's inside of you. It's in your heart. You want to speak unkind, untrue things about others. You want to tear them down. Of course, in today's culture, slander is actually a legal term. Listen to this legal definition from a legal dictionary of the word slander. It's an oral defamation in which someone tells one or more persons an untruth about another, which untruth will harm the reputation of the person defamed. Slander is a civil wrong and can be the basis of a lawsuit. Notice the key here is speaking an untruth about another person. There is another important legal term, and it's called hate speech. These two often go together. Hate speech is defined this way. It's a communication that carries no meaning other than the expression of hatred for some group, especially in circumstances in which the communication is likely to provoke violence. It is an incitement to hatred primarily against a group of persons defined in terms of race, ethnicity, national origin, gender, religion, sexual orientation, and the like. Hate speech can be any form of expression regarded as offensive to racial, ethnic, and religious groups and other discrete minorities or to women. Let me me be clear here. Calling sin, sin is not slander. Calling sin, sin is not hate speech. It's not speaking the truth in love. It's if you were to speak the truth in hatred that God forbids. If we call sin, sin, the world accuses us of slander and hate speech, and it's just simply not true. Jesus got into a lot of real hot water by pointing out the law to the Pharisees because it meant something to them, and so they killed him for it. And we're going to get into a lot of hot water, hot water pointing out biblical sexuality in the midst of this culture, whether we're talking about unmarried heterosexual activity or homosexual activity, to speak about that in public is not slander. It is not hate speech. We do so with a heart of love, a heart of compassion, with the grace of God upon our lips. We love the sinner. We hate sin as God hates sin, but because we love the sinner, we address these issues both in public and in private in a God-honoring way. 
Have no fear, church, that if you love Christ and you speak of Christ and your words are true and from a heart of love and kindness and compassion, then God will be honored. Lord willing, you're defending the gospel on the public square. But mind you, we will pay a price for this issue. Your pastor desires to be filled with love and filled with grace to never slander, but your pastor also is committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we will not relent. I pray that you'll be ready to speak the truth in love in the most difficult of situations, and if you're accused of slander or hate speech, if your heart is right, know that you have God on your side. We need to be a church that's not filled with slander, but a church, rather, that's known for our love for Jesus Christ. And our love for Jesus Christ overflows into the world of sin to call it what it is, so that people can be set free of bondage and people can be set free of the fires of hell. The good news of the gospel is that we never have to slander, but rather we point people to the Savior Jesus Christ. We're going to have to end here for this session. We'll pick up again next time. Let's prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. God, we thank you for the opportunity to dive into this important couple of verses that remind us of getting rid of these evil vices. God, we desire that even now, as we think about the cross, we're convicted of committing each and every one of these sins at some point in our life where we have been filled with bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. We pray, God, that you would remove these far from our hearts and far from our church, that you would help us to speak words that are filled with grace so that it may bring encouragement and comfort to those who hear. Wash us with your word Set a guard over our mouths. Help us to guard our own hearts. Help us to speak the truth with confidence and with a boldness, yet with a humility that would honor Christ and set people free from their sin. We pray, God, that you would search us and know us, that you would expose any wicked, evil sin in our hearts, even now as we remember the Lord's sacrifice here today at the Lord's table. Bless this time, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.